Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. America's 360 is a collaboration among the center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. First up this week, we turn our attention to Brazil to find out how the country's leadership is dealing with the COVID-19 crisis as the number of confirmed cases continues to increase rapidly country now has more than half a million infections, overtaking Russia as the world's number two coronavirus hotspot after the United States. Ricardo Zuniga is director of the Wilson Center's Brazil Institute. He joins us to discuss the latest. Ricardo, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you too, John. Thanks very much. So as you said, Brazil now has over 500,000 confirmed cases and nearly 30,000 deaths from COVID-19. The country is now the second in the world, as you noted, in the number of overall cases and fourth in the world in the number of deaths. But uh, unfortunately, the other uh, development, the other trend that we're seeing is that Brazil's on pace to see a doubling uh, in the case, number of deaths every two weeks, which is, for example, in, in the case of countries in Europe, that's already reached a doubling of deaths every two months. So it gives you an idea of this, the pace of the acceleration in Brazil. We've covered in previous Wilson events with experts that, that Brazil's situation is complicated by uh, an intense political dispute about how to combat the epidemic. And there's a split between a president who uh, doesn't acknowledge that there is the seriousness of COVID-19 as a health crisis and state governors and officials within his own administration that are trying more traditional medical approaches that we're seeing globally, social distancing, uh, other measures that that slow down the, the spread. And the bottom line, though, is that Brazil's situation is worsening as it heads into its fall season. It's easy to forget that the fall in in the Southern Hemisphere is going to mean probably a trajectory uh, for countries there. Against this backdrop, the Trump administration decided to bar the entry into the United States uh, last week of non-Americans who'd visited Brazil over the last two weeks. This is in line with what we saw in the case of Europe and some Asian countries where they took similar measures uh, to, again, uh, under uh, the auspices of trying to combat the spread of the disease. The Bolsonaro administration downplay this uh, report. Uh, The United States also announced the shipment of 2 million uh, doses of hydrochloroquine and uh, hydroxychloroquine, excuse me, and uh, 1,000 ventilators. And the case of the ventilators is important. There was this narrative in Brazil that the United States had been uh, essentially competing, out-competing Brazil for needed medical supplies. So it was important to symbolize show that we were uh, providing that assistance from the United States to Brazil. In the case of hydroxychloroquine, however, that dynamic has played out in Brazil very similarly to the way it's played out in the United States with medical professionals questioning the, the uh, efficacy and risk associated uh, with hydroxychloroquine and political leaders insisting on its use. And so that's also capturing some of the dynamic uh, as well. So a last important point on Brazil is that the impact of COVID is being accompanied by very serious political conflict between President Bolsonaro, the Brazilian judiciary, and the wider political class. 
the Supreme Court Justice Celso de Mello, who's uh, uh, leading one of the investigations in this case of alleged corruption of people around President Bolsonaro, compared Bolsonaro's rise to that of Hitler's in Germany in a message to fellow justices earlier this week and said it was necessary to fight of democracy in Brazil. Uh, there was also a group, a new movement that formed uh, across the political spectrum that meant to model itself after the pro-democracy movement that helped bring um, an end to the military government in the 1980s in Brazil. So what you're seeing is a real heightening of the tension. Help us sort out the difference between fiery rhetoric, threats uh, from real possibilities. In other words, can Bolsonaro close down the Supreme Court? So there are true institutional restraints in Brazil. The judiciary continues to function. Courts continue to be respected. Decisions by courts continue to be respected. And very clearly, the Congress continues to exercise its important uh, duties under the Congress. So uh, I, as well, that members of President Bolsonaro's administration have emphasized that they would not support a coup, that there's no, uh, there's no possibility of the military intervening to uh, somehow address the situation, the political crisis, I would say the chances are very low of any kind of break in the, in the institutional arrangements. The, the possibilities of a political crisis, on the other hand, are quite high. And, and, what, and what, where, is, where is the public on all of this? You mentioned this political divide. I'm guessing it's not a 50-50 split. How popular or unpopular is the president? The President Bolsonaro continues to command about 30% of the uh, support of the population in Brazil. In Brazil, because there are so many different political uh, parties, uh, over 30, the 30% support is actually quite strong. And so for the moment, um, the president seems to be pretty well guarded against, uh, say, an impeachment push uh, or anything of that nature. Okay, Ricardo, thank you. We'll look forward. I'm sure we'll have more to say. You'll have more to say about Brazil when you join us for the roundtable a little later in the program. Thanks for this. When we return, Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson speaks with a special guest who joins us from Santiago, Chile. Stay tuned. You're listening to America's 360. Hi, I'm Cindy Arnson. And I am really pleased to welcome to this program Lucia Dammert, who is a former fellow of the Wilson Center, currently a global fellow, and is based in Santiago, Chile. Um, Lucia, great to have you. Chile initially, at the, at the um, outset of the pandemic, earned a lot of praise for the way that it was implementing testing. Um, but after a gradual easing of the quarantine, the number of cases has just gone through the roof. Um, Reuters reported last week that the number of cases has quadrupled um, since early May, something like 4,000 new cases every day. So the city, especially the capital of, of Santiago, is under lockdown. Um, as uh, Ricardo just mentioned, the Southern Hemisphere is heading into the winter. What happened in Chile? Hi, Cindy. Thank you for inviting me to this interesting discussion. Well, of course, uh, what happened in Chile is uh, could be linked to three um, elements, I'll say. The first element is that we face confusing messages and confusing measures. Uh, the president and the Ministry of Health, uh, he started by saying that Chile has one of the best health systems in the world and that we have not to be afraid of anything because the whole system was prepared for the pandemic. Uh, actually, just in April, 
the Minister of Health uh, start talking about the virus-free certificate that he will handle to everyone who has been infected. Uh, and, and even though the World Health Organization said that the certificate is not good, the government continue with these uh, measures and, and messages that actually confuse people. The second element is that the government and most of the political realm um, develop a, a false sense of security. Um, we talk uh, really fast about the new normality, the new normal. Uh, we uh, start uh, discussing open uh, shopping malls uh, three weeks ago. We start uh, discussing about going to cafes and having some normal, while distant, but normal life on the streets. And although mayors and the medical uh, group uh, requested confinement uh, for everyone in Santiago de Chile, the government decided to implement it based on data that is non as non as rigorous as it was supposed to be uh, for a for a couple of uh, at least five uh, weeks. So in that period of time, uh, the government actually lost a track of the infection, and now we are under uh, enforced quarantine here in Santiago. The third element is that the economic measures that the government has taken are still weak. We have a social protection measures uh, that are really limited. People are getting really small uh, sums of money. And uh, after a couple of weeks, they have to go outside and try to work. Even though Chile has a different situation than Brazil or Peru or Bolivia, we still have more than 3 million people that actually leave their earnings every day. And the government didn't um, follow the actual policies that were needed. So these three elements are, you know, the basic to understand what's going on now in Chile. Last fall, Chile was one of the countries, one of the principal countries in Latin America that saw this huge outpouring of uh, discontent, of massive street demonstrations accompanied in some instances with um, really regrettable acts of violence. But um, the, the protest dropped off and then resumed again early in the year, especially when the semester began again in March. Um, and now they've gone uh, very quiet during the quarantine. Um, what is the what is the possibility that this these all of these different demands will resurface in an even more explosive way um, in light of all of this economic suffering uh, that Chile and other countries of the region are experiencing? Yeah, well, I think that discontent is not going to fade away. Uh, I think that Chile, as in the U.S., are facing a structural problems. Uh, problems that have to be uh, linked with the socioeconomic model. Nowadays, you can see that if you have money, you can go to the private health clinic, and then the service you will get is much better than if you go to the public sector. Uh, nowadays, you know that if you, you have kids on the uh, public uh, educational system, online classes will be basically um, very weak. But if you have money, then you can pay for private school. So the whole 
gap and the inequality topic is still on the streets. And uh, my sense is that economic, the economic crisis, which is really profound, uh, the lack of legitimacy of this government, uh, the increasing discontent that people had with the policies that the government is actually implemented will sparkle riots. Uh, riots with uh, violence that perhaps are not that uh, long-term riots as we saw in October, but you know, specific points in the city and in the country in which violence will be more and more uh, prevail. Um, I just want to mention also, Cindy, that an increasing level of violence and crime is being perceived in Chile also. So uh, in the near future, you can have rioting for, uh, of people against the government, but you can also have some people requesting more presence of armed forces and more intervention of the military on the streets. So it's a it's a couple, it's a double-edged sword that you know Chile will face in the next uh, perhaps six to eight months. Um, Lucia, could you describe a little bit, since you're in the region, what the quarantine is like? Um, how average citizens are living this reality every day? Yeah, for for those of us who are living under the quarantine zone, because it's not everywhere in the country. Uh, then you have to ask for permits, for police permits to do almost anything. So if you wanna, for instance, walk your dog, or if you wanna go to the supermarket, or if you wanna visit someone who is older and needs um, medical care, then you have to go to the virtual uh, commissaria, the virtual uh, police office, and get a permit that will be in your phone. And the police could stop you anywhere and you have a specific amount of uh, minutes. So for instance, if you're going to go to the supermarket, you have three hours and you cannot go further your radio around your house, which I think is really important, Cindy, is that in the upper um, socioeconomic neighborhoods, uh, trips have dropped 60% while on quarantine, but in the lower, uh, socioeconomic extraction, uh, trips have lowered almost uh, 20%. So it's a different world. If you are here in Santiago in an upper scale neighborhood, there is almost no one on the street. There is little cars. But if you go to downtown Santiago or even farther to, you know, socioeconomic uh, most vulnerable neighborhoods, then you have lots of people on the streets either trying to work or selling stuff or moving to places. So those are the problems that we're facing in Latin America in general, but also in Chile. And those are the problems that the Ministry of Health just recently said. And just remember that this person was a Ministry of Health for four years before. He said that he couldn't realize how much poverty uh, was in Santiago and how many people live uh, so close together in some areas of the city. So now there is lots of talks about the, you know, the ghettos of uh, immigrants, specifically Venezuelans, Colombian, Peruvians, who live so close together that sometimes, you know, those are the places that they just go out on the streets. But that's the reality we are facing um, for our third week already.
Lucia, thanks for that sobering analysis. We hope to come back to you during the question and answer. Now I'll turn it back to our host, John Walewski. Thank you, Cindy. And thank you, Lucia. Up next, it's our roundtable segment. Our experts will discuss the economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis in the Americas and how countries are attempting to reopen even as Latin America becomes the new global epicenter of the virus. That's coming your way in just a moment. Welcome back to America's 360. During each episode of the program, our experts will connect the dots, exploring the innumerable ties that bind the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You've already heard from two of our members uh, of the roundtable, Ricardo and Cindy. Also joining us is Duncan Wood, director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute, Chris Sands, director of the Center's Canada Institute, and Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. And that's where we'll begin with Benjamin. Benjamin, when last we spoke, we were on the eve of default in Argentina. And now we have crossed that threshold. JP Morgan analysts are saying that this current economic crisis will be worse than the 2001 meltdown. Here are some of the aspects of that one. GDP declined by 20% over three years. The banking system collapsed. Unemployment reached 25%. More than half the country fell into poverty. What does worse than that look like? It's an extraordinary projection to even come close to the devastation of that crisis, which lasted, you know, as you point out, around from 1998 all the way to 2002. But there are already people talking about a a potential new generation of cartoneros, which are, you know, Argentines who are scraping together an income by collecting trash um, and, and selling the recyclable and other useful materials. And look, the projections for this year are grim, and it follows a period of of economic decline. You had a devastating drought in 2018. You had a currency run in 2019 after the primary election showed that the politics were moving in a less market-friendly direction. And now on top of that, you have um, one of the strictest lockdowns in Latin America. It began March 20th. It was just extended again all the way to June 6th. And the result of it could be um, an economic decline this year of nearly 10%. I mean, that's on the, the very bad end, but it is possible. Um, and you're also seeing a deficit of almost 6% this year in a country that can't borrow internationally. It's just defaulted on its debt yet again. So that means money printing and potentially devastating inflation all at a time of you know massive recession. Yeah, um, I think it's, uh, you know, we're seeing bad news all over the region, of course. In uh, What we're seeing in Mexico is a situation where the president has uh, has promised that he's going to create uh, another 2 million jobs this year. Um, we see uh, a situation where the president uh, believes that uh, he can still uh, bring in foreign direct investment. Um, but uh, the sentiment amongst investors at this point in time over uh, Mexico is certainly highly pessimistic. I mean, the folks that I'm talking to right now uh, in the investment community believe that uh, the government is sending all of the wrong signals. And so investor confidence has really imploded in the country. And of course, a lot of that doesn't just have to do with the, uh, with the pandemic and what's been happening during the pandemic. It dates back to the beginnings of the uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador administration. But certainly, you know, during the pandemic, uh, the government has had multiple opportunities to try to reassure investors, to try to show them that it's open for business, and it's failed to do so. Um, in fact, it's taken steps quite in the opposite direction that really show that, uh, that Mexico is a country right now that uh, you know, investors are, are stepping away from rather than moving towards. And that's very worrying because you know, we have a Mexico which is 
primed to take advantage of the new USMCA. We have a Mexico which is primed to take uh, advantage of the growing tensions between the United States and China and the growing tendency towards nearshoring. And unfortunately, the government there is doing, it seems, everything it can to try to turn away uh, potential investors and to take advantage of those opportunities. Oh, Duncan, I can just pick up on that. Canada is one of the big investors in energy infrastructure in Mexico, has been looking at pipelines and uh, oil field services and so on. But Canada traditionally has been a bit skittish where Mexico is concerned. Not only are those messages from AMLO reaching uh, the U.S. and other international markets, Canada, the USMCA partner uh, that Mexico could be building on, is is gradually uh, pulling in its investment and, and quite worried about the direction that Mexico is taking. Is there any good news? I mean, uh, it, it, at this point, that would be the surprise, right? The, the question of bad news, it, it's really a question of how bad will it get? And we're seeing projections and predictions that are just devastating around the world. Is there any good news in the Americas? Is there anybody who's leading the way? Ricardo? So uh, in the case of Brazil, where we've talked about the very significant uh, grim news, which uh, multiple multiple folks have mentioned with regard to countries across the region, uh, in fact, the GDP is going to shrink significantly. But in the middle of all that, you have a record uh, year for agricultural exports from Brazil. And a big reason for that, of course, is the weakness of the Brazilian currency, the real against the dollar. But the fact is, in the middle of all of this, you see a very significant uh, increase in the GDP of the agricultural sector, continuing a line that we've we've seen in recent years in Brazil. But it is one bright spot. And it does kind of take me back to what Duncan was talking about in terms of countries uh, positioning themselves to take advantage of you know, potential decoupling and more regional uh, more regionally integrated production chains. I don't know what that means uh, around the region, but in the case, uh, Benjamin, of Argentina and Brazil, that's been the local economy that's mattered. That industrial connection between Argentina and Brazil has really powered the growth of the industrial sector and, and, and jobs in both countries. How do you see that evolving? I think that, unfortunately, it's going to be China's recovery, I think, that really conditions how quickly Argentina gets back on its feet and Brazil as well. I think you're right. I mean, for better or worse, these are pretty closed economies that really just depend on one another for a lot of their manufactured exports. But, you know, the economies, the real engine of both, it seems to me, are the agricultural exports, the commodities that are purchased by China. And I think China will either quickly bring these countries out of this deep recession in some kind of happy V-shaped scenario, or we'll drag them out quite slowly and, and the pain will be prolonged. Chris, I noticed that you, you started to say something when we were asking for good news. Does Canada have actually good news to report? Sort of good news. I think the interesting thing for Cana the Canadians is that the COVID lockdown has actually led to a reduction in the number of protests. Some of the listeners here will remember that at the beginning of 2020, uh, largely First Nations groups allied with environmental groups were blocking critical infrastructure, in particular rail and roads, to try to pressure the government to act on Aboriginal rights. And this was causing real problems for the Canadian economy, which was already in recession. What we've seen since the lockdown is certain projects, and I, I think about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, have been able to move forward because the protesters are, are home and being safe. So in every crisis, there's an opportunity, and we're seeing some resolution of a problem that's dogged Canada for more than a year now that people are home and focused on, on much 
different topics. I really wish that we could uh, say something similar about Mexico's energy sector. Right now, we're seeing uh, sort of negative news on a daily basis, and particularly with regards to uh, you know, major investment projects that have taken place over the past few years. You know, recently, the, uh, the Mexican government took the decision to, uh, uh, to, to try to uh, prevent private uh, renewables generators from connecting to the, uh, the national grid. Um, they, uh, they wanted to show a, uh, a preference for electricity being generated by the uh, Federal Electricity Commission, or CFE, in Mexico. That resulted in court injunctions um, against the move. But the, uh, the president and the head of the, uh, the Federal Electricity Utility have come out and said that they want to see um, the grid operator, Senase, now charging more money to those private generators than they have before. Um, so that they pay their fair share. And all this is spiraling kind of out of control into a conversation or a narrative rather that is focused on corruption. And increasingly it seems as as though the president is using the term corruption in Mexico to refer to uh, anybody who wants to make money. Um, You know, just uh, just, uh, this morning, there's been a a major debate in Mexico over statements by the president who said that uh, scientists, members of the scientific community in Mexico are corrupt because they've been trying to make money out of the system over the years. And uh, we're seeing a very harmful narrative in this this case. And I'm extremely worried about the way that this is going to unfold. Duncan, I wondered if... The way that COVID has played out and the way that, that the president has, that AMLO has been seen in managing this, has that begun to impact his public approval numbers? So we've seen um, in the early uh, weeks of the crisis, uh, his numbers dropped significantly. Uh, we saw a drop of at least 10% in the first month of the crisis in Mexico. Um, but they, the numbers then stabilized. And depending on which poll you, uh, you believe, but most of them are showing the same tendency he seems to have stabilized now around the 50% mark, which is really good for a, uh, for a U.S. president, not so great for a Mexican president. And just by comparison, if you uh, look back at the H1N1 crisis back in 2009, then President Felipe Calderon had an approval rating of around 65%. Um, and, uh, you know, he's far from being the most popular president in Mexican history. So I think that the, the president has certainly felt the impact of this. Uh, and that's why I think we're seeing him being so active uh, on, on his daily press briefings and in his public statements in general. Um, he wants to get back, back out on the road. He's uh, begun touring the country again so that he can be with his beloved Pueblo. And, uh, you know, we're seeing an increasing polarization of the debate in Mexico, which I think we're seeing across the region. Duncan, I'm glad you brought in that political dimension of public opinion. Um, June 1st represents the first anniversary of the presidency of the inauguration of Nayib Bukele in El Salvador. And a lot of the discussion up till now has been on the economic consequences of COVID and what's happened and not happened, what the opportunities are. But there have also been, I think, some pretty profound um, consequences for governance. And El Salvador is a pretty good reflection of that. Um, in the way that the pandemic has served as um, as an excuse, really, or as an opportunity for the president to kind of reinforce a number of authoritarian tendencies, um, uh, a uh, president who came in through um, uh, a vote that was very much against the two dominant parties, and he was seen as as uh, as the alternative. It was a vote of punishment. Um, 
but he did not have a solid base of support in any political party of his own. Um, he remains very popular. In fact, one of the most popular presidents in, uh, in Latin America, and yet he has taken measures bringing the military into physically into the legislature when the Congress was not willing to um, approve a budget proposal on, on security expenditures. He has defied Supreme Court and Constitutional Court um, um, decisions that go counter to the kinds of policies that he's been trying to implement. And so there's a lot of um, concern um, for the future of the rule of law. This is a country that is, um, what, some 20, 30 years past a very violent and, and brutal civil war um, that was itself a reflection of the lack of governance. And, and, and yet there has been uh, a fair amount of progress in, in building these democratic institutions in El Salvador. And now you have somebody um, moving um, a, you know, to undermine or to undo those kinds of um, advances um, in the name of fighting the pandemic, in the name of overcoming some of El Salvador's biggest problems, which include gang violence and include lack of economic opportunity. So I think there's kind of a warning light that's been flashing uh, for uh, several months. Benjamin wants to jump in and then Chris. John, I think the ground rules here were good news. I don't think Duncan and Cindy really came through for no. you. So I'm, gonna, I'm gonna see if I can try. How about uh, Uruguay? <laughs> no, even Argentina, though. I mean, I think Uruguay is a, a success story on the on the public health measures. But even Argentina, I mean, which we've talked about as a real economic basket case and as a place that has not seen you know cases decline despite these remarkable public health measures. But actually, you've seen polarization decline um, for now. You've seen a president elected just last October with less than fifty percent of the vote approval rating went as high as eighty percent in the last few weeks. It's down a bit now. And you've seen the mayor of the city of Buenos Aires, who's the primary figure in the opposition, appearing at press conferences with the president and the governor of the province of Buenos Aires, both from the other political party. I think we'll see how long that lasts, but there is this sort of very tentative talk that the end of this infamous grieta, this division in Argentine society, might be, for now at least, on pause. And I think that's been you know, unexpected and it's been reassuring. We'll take any good news we can get. Chris Sands. Well, I was, it was intriguing hearing about El Salvador, a relatively geographically small country where people are getting out. Canada, sort of the other end of the spectrum, very big country, and parliament rose in March. Uh, most MPs went back to their, their ridings, their constituencies. And what's been very controversial in Canada this week is that Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, in a deal that he did with the NDP, he has a minority of liberal members, did a deal with the NDP to put off the sitting of parliament until September. So no sittings, no government facing the opposition for question period, no opportunity for many MPs who are far from a camera and a long way from Ottawa to weigh in and hold the government to account for what is truly a massive fiscal stimulus and what some would say is uh, on and off performance on the public health front. It's, uh, it, it's good to hear Chris uh, talking about these kind of things up in Canada. Um, you know, Canada often seems to be the outlier uh, in, in a lot of the conversations about the Americas that we have. But here, I think there's a good comparison to be made with what's uh, been happening in Mexico. We've seen attempts by the, uh, by the government there to try to force uh, legislation through Congress um, to bypass the traditional uh, uh, procedures and due process in, in the country. And that has uh, raised a lot of eyebrows within the country as well. And ultimately, it all comes down to this question that we've all been struggling with, I think, for at least the past four or five years, which is how strong are the institutions? Are they going to hold up 
under stress. Um, I am conscious of, uh, of Ben's appeal to be more pos positive and optimistic. <laughs> so let me give you one bright, uh, bright thing to talk about here. And that is that uh, you know, there are reports coming out this week um, that some in, uh, investors and some uh, financial institutions are seeing a potential upside for Mexico towards the end of this year. And just as uh, Ben was talking about and Ricardo were talking about the importance of China for those economies, of course, it's the United States that matters for Mexico. And so if we do see a strong recovery in the United States um, in the final quarter of this year, then we are likely to see a, uh, a, a significant uh, uh, growth in Mexico. The problem is, is that the, uh, the recession is hitting Mexico so hard. And here's where I go back to put on my pessimistic cap again which is that you know, we saw a collapse of Mexican exports in the first quarter of this year of almost 40%. And of course, Mexico has been depending upon those exports of manufactured goods, in particular to the United States, to, uh, to really keep it afloat. At a time when it's been experiencing you know, recession before the pandemic, it was only the US economy's strong performance that was really keeping Mexico afloat. So everybody in Mexico is praying that the United States can really have a V-shaped recovery so that Mexico can benefit. Duncan, there was, uh, I hate to add another stone to that negative side of the, of the balance, but uh, I think that you're right, certainly, I mean, the, the U.S., uh, strong U.S. economy was driving what positive performance there was in the Mexican export sector, but the fact that Mexico performed so poorly during a boom in the U.S. economy, during the, an expansion of consumer confidence and consumer spending in the United States, I mean, that has to be a real concern, not just for, uh, not just for Mexico, but for a North American economy that's really relied on these, not just the trade flows and on Mexican consumer spending. Mexico is still the largest market for the United States uh, right now at, 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 at this point. Uh, and to see this kind of, of impact really has to be concerning to anyone who's been watching developments in North America over the last 25 years. I think it is across the region, Ricardo. And, uh, you know, I, I always like to say that, uh, you know, North America is strong because of the, not because of the similarities between the economies, but the fact that they complement each other in, in such good fashion. And, you know, the fact is that Mexico has certain competitive advantages. Um, but in recent years, Mexico, as you just said, has, has emerged as a very, very important export market for the United States of America, um, has become the number one trading partner of the US. And with the potential collapse of the internal market in Mexico, um, with the collapse of investor confidence there, with the fact that, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, um, the government seems to be doing everything it can to, uh, uh, to miss the opportunity of, of rising conflict with, uh, with China, between China and the United States, that this really doesn't uh, uh, augur well for the future of North America, at least in the short term. In the long term, and I know it's easy in the long term to be optimistic, uh, in the long term, I, I think that uh, investment will come back to Mexico. Let's face it, it's got a great demographic profile. It's, uh, it has that huge border with the United States. It's highly integrated in the United States economy. But you know, as I've said on many occasions recently, uh, when I speak to investors, they say, you know, perhaps now is not the time to invest in Mexico, but we all want to be there long term. Thank you to all of you, and we look forward to your contributions in future episodes. Uh, we'll return with more America's 360 in the coming weeks. And in the meantime, we look forward to your feedback. Are there particular topics you'd like to hear our experts address? If so, please let us know. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Stay healthy. Thanks for joining us.
You've been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.